0: I'm Renata Koch-Alvarenga. I'm a Brazilian climate justice advocate, uh, founder and executive director of Empodera Clima, which is an organization dealing with gender and climate justice, which has been really my line of work for the past eight years since I started in this climate activism space as an 18-year-old. And so my journey has been... um, navigating the world as a Brazilian, Latin American in this high-level spaces that I've been able to access, especially in the climate spaces, but also in the gender equality, feminism spaces, Uh, and finding my way there. And so I think I've found my way a lot in the policy space. Just graduated very recently uh, with a Master of Public Policy from Harvard, from the Harvard Kennedy School. And now I am working as a disaster risk financing specialist at the World Bank. So, again, trying to Connect the dots and and find my way in these spaces, uh, but very engaged and interested in climate policy, climate finance, climate adaptation, and how all of that correlates with intersectionality, gender, race, and all of these really important issues that I'm sure we'll talk a lot about.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. I have the pleasure of introducing Renata Koch-Alvarenga as my Season 3, Episode 1 guest. She is somebody who I've actually been following for a really long time on social media, and we serendipitously met at Elkoy in D.C. in the lead-up to COP28 in Dubai, and we exchanged contact information, and she was lovely enough to join me on this podcast episode. In this episode, we talk about her journey into the climate space. As somebody who is Brazilian and Latina, we discuss what it means to sit at the intersection of gender and climate. And since starting her organization Empodera Clima, which really focuses on that intersection, Renata discusses what it was like to get her master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and then now be working at the World Bank in disaster financing and sustainable finance. I really hope you enjoy this episode. We talk about a lot of different things, and she's just such a wonderful person and speaker, and I really just want to take the time to thank her for coming onto the podcast and creating such an enriching and curious environment so with that have a great week see you soon and thanks for listening Yeah, definitely. So there's obviously a lot I want to dig into. And I feel like with these conversations, you know, it can get really personal. And part of what I try to do is elevate Latin female voices. And so something that I was really interested in was what initially got you interested in that gender and climate intersection? And was there a personal experience, something poignant or maybe not so poignant that led you to that intersection?
0: Yes, the gender and climate intersection, I believe, is somewhat niche, right, and specific. Even nowadays, when I tell people that I do gender and climate justice work, a lot of people don't know what that is or, you know, yeah. often have never heard of this connection. And so for me, Nowadays, I see it as very simple, right? This connection to being a feminist, um, supporting the gender equality movement and kind of bringing that into the climate space. But when I started, it was quite, I would say, just by chance, quite random. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got a chance to go to COP21. So the UN Climate Conference in 2015, the really big one that, you know, resulted in the Paris Agreement. And uh, I was 18 years old. It was my first ever kind of general conference. I yeah. think I'm lucky to be in the right place, right time, that I ended up at COP with a bunch of um, Brazilian young people. That's You know, we're really working to bring more youth participation from Brazil in these high level spaces in the United Nations. Yeah, And so when I attended this conference, we kind of divided our work a little bit. So some of us uh, went into the climate mitigation rooms or the climate adaptation because COP is so big, right? There's so Mm -hmm. much happening all over. There's so many rooms in terms of negotiations, events, etc. And I got placed basically in the human rights slash gender um, side of things, which, you know, was something I was very passionate about, but I had no idea how it all connected. Uh, And so I sat there and I learned a lot about what countries were thinking of including versus not including in this Ooh. document that ended up being the Paris Agreement, the biggest climate agreement that we have nowadays uh, with countries' commitments on reducing greenhouse gases, on fighting climate change. And that specific negotiation that I sat at, uh, truly just watching you know, on the floor, just being an observer, um, was about gender and whether or not to include women's empowerment, gender equality, climate justice, um, intergenerational. No equity, so you know how you've kind of come into the conversation. Mm. And I actually watched as a lot of these negotiators and, and diplomats um, said no to including these, um, you know, these, these wow. words into the agreement. They said, you know what, it's not really important for our country, for our delegation. What does it really have to do with climate? And these were, you know, these big European countries that we know um, uh, kind of raise this campaign of gender equality, but at the same time, in these kind of closed door negotiation rooms they were not doing that and including my country including brazil in terms of not kind of um bringing the diversity that our country has into these spaces so basically i just saw a divide between what i saw at the local level the grassroots level what a bunch of really amazing feminist groups and climate ngos were doing locally in my city in porto alegre or just all over the country versus what was happening Mm. in the spaces where you know the big decisions were being made, what was going to be decided there was going to really impact our politics, our policies, national, local um, change, right? And so it just got me really worried and I started studying a lot more, but it was really true, a high-level space that then I trickled down to the local space and understood more of these local movements for gender equality and climate justice.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting because I feel like I had a similar experience when I went to cop twenty six in Glasgow with the lack of youth involvement sitting at the table. Like there was definitely youth presence within protests, within grassroots movement, but less so within the negotiating space. And that's kind of what got me interested in joining Youngo and then eventually, you know, going to Elcoy and all of that kind of stuff. But I think something that really stuck out to me from what you just said was, you know, you started Empodera Clima in 2019, and part of your mission is using what you call multilingual educational tools. So can you kind of walk me through like what that means in practice and, you know, some takeaways since starting your organization?
0: Definitely. I mean, ever since I attended that first COP, you know, in 2015, yeah. I spent many years with this question in my head of about how do we bring these conversations happening at the like highest level possible at the united nations Mm -hmm. to the local level because at the end of the day you can see climate in two ways right this it's this transnational issue that affects everywhere around the world but at the same time there's a lot to be said and a lot of relevance about local action right and Mm -hmm. kind of bringing a lot of civil society and grassroots groups together and so I understood that it's really important to bring these negotiations agendas to the local level and so Mm -hmm. for many years I didn't really know how to do that until we got to the point that a couple of my friends wanted to know how do I even explain this work that you do you know I was studying I was researching I was presenting on gender and climate justice and my friends wanted to kind of share that with their friends yeah my one of my friends have actually told me you know I really want to tell tell my grandma what you do how do I even Mm-hmm. About that, right? And you can't really just share, I don't know, a link of the Paris Agreement yeah. or what we call the Gender Action Plan, which is kind of the biggest documents within COP about gender. Uh, because these are not only really hard to understand, really technical language, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are not translated to my native language, to Portuguese, for example. Right. It's not one of the UN official languages. And there's just a bunch of barriers around language itself, right? What is mm-hmm. translated to the languages that you understand and that you speak fluently, but also translation in the sense of how do you make this accessible and approachable and yeah. fun and engaging, right? Which is a lot of the times not what UN documents are. No. And so Impodera Clima initially actually came about with that idea in mind. Let's bring mm. discussions, this agenda, this content to another kind of more layer of accessibility. And so it started with compiling and curating a lot of really good content that was already out there because there were already some really cool, I don't know, podcast episodes or videos or research documents, but it was so hard to find them in Spanish or in Portuguese. And so that's what we did. And then later added on French. And when it started, it was just me and a couple of friends from Care About Climate from a a really great um, youth nonprofit based in the US, but that does work around the world. And, you know, over the years, i found that there's really a need for this type of conversation and not only to compile content like that but to produce and make content like that with a youth lens with a gender lens you know writing in an engaging way and so nowadays in podera also writes a lot of content we produce a lot of articles research documents that brings a lot of these topics together so within gender and climate there's um, agriculture right there's girls education there's policy there's so many issues within the Term. And yeah, that's how it came about. It's really this noticing that there's a lack of educational tools, conversationals, and how can we yeah. really bring together true translation and content.
1: Yeah, so with that, like, how large is your team? I mean, I'm sure you can't do all of this by yourself nowadays.
0: Exactly. And I mean, I like to think, too, that, you know, you can't really get anywhere by yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah in the climate movements i mean that's to another level we need a exactly. lot of this and it's been really beautiful actually because along you know the years it's been about 4 years and a half that we've been active it has very organically grown into its own thing so now we're mm. an independent organization that's based in brazil where 30 young people now from not only brazil but all of over Latin America. So we have people from Peru, Venezuela, Argentina, Mexico. And so it really just organically shows us how people are interested in this. So really to join the team, you don't really have to be a climate activist, someone that has mm. been talked about and speaks at big events. That's really not yeah. Out. You have yes. to be passionate about these issues. You have to want, you know, on a deep personal level, to make change. And 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 just having that avenue to make change is what Empodera Clima is. Uh, because I think everyone should, if they want, you know, join these movements and and attend these conferences and be a spokesperson or mm-hmm. do whatever type of climate activism you want to do. It can be art, right? It can be music. It can be so many different things. And so nowadays, Empodera Clima is a little broader than just you know. Produce producing content translating content but also okay. doing advocacy work going to these cops organizing really big high level events led by youth that you know young teenagers speak at so kind of really shifting that narrative of who gets to be in those spaces not only, as you said, in the civil society, kind of let's do mm-hmm. actions, but let's be in you know, the rooms where things are happening, the rooms where the decisions are being made. That's a lot of my goals. And we're you know, slowly doing that. Um, but it's really nice and powerful to be around so many Latin American young people.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And something that you said that, that really stuck out to me was, I think something I felt, which is this tension of doing work on the local level versus a national or even transnational level. Um, It's, you know, sort of like, how do we, how do we feel like we can enter into the space and make the most difference? And something that I kind of was curious about too, with your journey is now that you're working at the World Bank, like, I'm really curious to know like how you approach your job and then also just like the work that you do on a broader level Um, because I feel I feel the same tension of like where can we make the most impact Um, yeah so just wanted to kind of pick your brain there.
0: This is a great question that I think a lot about you. It's where can you make the most change? And again, as I said, there's so many different ways that you can, you know, make an impact. Um, and it really depends about you know what you're interested in, what you think you're good at. And for me, I really have been for many years very passionate about this international relations space, you know, the the global institutions like the international financial institutions or even the United Nations. I did international relations as as my undergrad, did a lot of modern United. As well, and so it's always appealed to me. Not because it's perfect, because it's far from perfect, right? There's so many issues with a lot of these organizations, but at the same time, I'm a deep believer that we need, um, you know, young people, activists, people that are very passionate about changing the status quo and making differences. Uh, kind of occupying these spaces, right? And not staying just on the outside. We need that too, right? I think, for example, in democracies to make good politics, we need pressure from civil society groups, right? You need both sides. But I think if we can get these people who have done work on the ground, who are working with, um, you know, young people from multiple areas and have these perspectives, which I have a little bit, not everything, obviously, there's always, you know, blind signs and things left to learn. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of power to just occupying these spaces as a young person. And so um, I've done some work at the UN, at the youth office, and it's just nice to see that shift happening when you're able to go inside and bring these perspectives. And with the World Bank now, um, of course, I mean, it's um, just very interesting as well to see how they operate. And here I speak, of course, on a personal level, but I think it's important to just see how these big institutions, especially on the financial side, because if you think on what's happening with climate policy, climate finance is that's kind of the peak of everything. How are we going to fund climate mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage? All of these issues are very hot right now at the negotiation space. So I was just very curious to see how these big institutions operate from the inside. And I think there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of good work. It's very international. And it just goes to show that we need different people, different skills, right? Diversity of opinions, experiences, uh, background, location. If we're gonna solve this issue, so it's been an interesting challenge in that way, and yeah, just learning a lot more because it's a new area that I'm in. In disaster.
1: yeah, no, and I I know that it's you know a fairly recent um, job for you, so but I'm I'm definitely curious just to kind of like take a step back if you could sort of position climate risk financing within like the larger issue of climate change for my listeners. Um, And for those who aren't really familiar with climate finance, like what's, what are the key things to understand about the space?
0: Climate finance can get quite complicated. I would say I'm still myself learning to, to navigate, um, you know, the climate finance discussions because it's so hot. There's so much happening, but basically it's how do we fund the issues around the climate crisis, right? So we can talk about climate mitigation, which is, for example, how do we reduce greenhouse gases, right? And that will need finance if we're talking about technology transfers, so that countries in, in the developing world in the global south are able to then develop clean energy, for example, so they can be a part of what we call the just transition, the transition away from fossil fuels into, to clean energy sources. So that's an example of where climate finance can go in. The other example is in climate adaptation. So a disaster takes place, there's a flood in a city. Um, How do we adapt to it? We're gonna need to establish measures that will require funding, right? Um, And how do we tackle the, you know, the other big issue that comes up a lot in the climate policy discussions is loss and damage. So the places that already have been damaged, that already have suffered Immensable losses and really sometimes can never go back to what they were. How do you compensate for these losses and damages that these countries have faced? And I think it's important to put this climate finance discussion in a larger context, which is what we call the global south. So a lot of the developing countries and then the global north. So um, a lot of countries in Europe and North America that have been historically polluting, emitting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere a long history, so the historical part is really important. So, of course, there's emerging economies, including my own country, including Brazil, that are now, of course, polluting a lot, and there's conversations around that and what are their responsibilities. But there's a lot to say about how we got here, right? And the fact is that with the industrial revolution and a lot of what these countries had to do, kind of to get into this level of absurd consumption and production that we have nowadays, that came at a cost, which which is, you know, the climate crisis that we have now. And so climate finance is also about that, is how can these countries that have historically emitted more pollution, more gases in the atmosphere, how can they now compensate for that and help countries that are just now starting to develop themselves more and establish their own economies? How can they deal with the climate crisis amid disasters? I would say that's the, the high level overview.
1: I think it's honestly one of the hardest parts about the climate conversation, I would say. And, um, you know, something that I've thought about as well as like, I feel like a lot of what we've seen is reactionary spending at least in the US so you know FEMA reacting to a hurricane or wildfires and and now it's starting to move you know in more of a, a risk analysis um sort of space and I I think the private sector is really moving into the space where big banks are trying to do climate risk modeling to understand what those impacts would be um and so I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts as well on like what is you know the role of private institutions within the that bigger conversation with multilateral organizations
0: Yes what you said about, how a lot of the spending and the funding is reactionary is so crucial because at the end of the day, this is what happens, right? For example, if we consider the Caribbean, which is um, the region that I have been focused on in my studies and now my work, these islands know they're going to have hurricanes, right? There's a hurricane season every year. So they know it's going to happen But a lot of times they don't have enough funds or resources within the government, for example, to prepare for this hurricane. So it will happen. There will be a disaster. There will be destruction. And then the funding comes after, as you said, whether it is from these big kind of international financial institutions or the private sector as well. And the issue with that is not only that it's reactionary and then it doesn't allow the governments to prepare, but also at the same time, you know, a lot of times it's not enough funding or a lot of times it just comes too late. And there's even something called the CNN effect, which is this idea that um, right after a disaster happens, it's more interesting and beneficial for these companies or organizations to then send funds, right? Because then it shows that they did something. And if you think about um, you know, the, the impact of funding, it makes sense in the sense that, you know, you you fund uh, a solution, a recovery, a reconstruction, and you see the results right away. And I think when we talk about what we what we say early disaster financing, that's much trickier to measure, right? Because we mm-hmm. help communities to be more resilient to have the food they need ahead of a disaster or to prepare their homes or to evacuate or even have better um, early warning systems. So systems that can track exactly when these hurricanes, floods, whatever it is, are coming so that people can take the necessary measures. If you have that, then you don't have, you know, the numbers of how many people were saved. Sometimes you do, but it's just harder to see the kind of cause and effects of all of that. So it's tricky. you yeah, to- saw it with with Puerto Rico, for sure. exactly, exactly. And it just keeps happening. This is the thing. It's an endless, vicious cycle that these countries go through, and especially, as you mentioned Puerto Rico and you know other um countries, territories in the Caribbean a lot of them are deep into debt. And so there's also a lot to be said about their economic situation. What is, um, you know, the type of economic activity that they rely on, which a lot of times is tourism. And so if you can't have tourism because of a disaster, then you get into this cycle all over again. And yeah. of course, you know, I talked about gender. When you think about racial injustices, you mm-hmm. see What are the areas that were most affected and also what are the areas that are receiving the most funding? A lot of times it's not the poorest areas, um, you know, the the areas that have the people that are most vulnerable. And so there's so many disparities and inequalities within disaster funding, which is
1: very difficult, just contributes to the climate injustice that we see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, we are almost out of time, but something that I'd love to just kind of like close with is like, what's something that is on your radar these days, anything you're reading, watching, um, something that gives you hope. Yeah, would just love to have your input.
0: I love that question because I do feel like sometimes when you talk about climate disasters, it can sound very negative, right? Because, yes, it's disasters, it's happening, and it can feel echo anxiety, as we call it, right? And so I think... These things are happening. We have to read about them, but at the same time, we have to lead with optimism when it comes to solving the climate crisis, especially as young people, as feminist groups. Because I think bringing that joy into the conversation, which is definitely something that at Clima we try to do, and just you know have fun events and meetings and keep ourselves motivated in that way is just so so important, more than you could ever even know, right? It just keeps you going. And so for me, I would say that these days I've been. Following a lot of these like young um, young movements and activities, and just seeing the power of what's happening, right, and seeing how things have changed from the time that I started, which wasn't that long ago, but. Mm-hmm. It- if we think about the climate conversations, a lot has changed. So from the time that I've started to now, there's a lot more young people in the movement. In the gender and climate space, there's a lot more conversations happening. Um, there's a great book by Mary Robinson that talks about uh, climate change being a man-made problem, but it having being a feminist solution as well. Ooh, I love that. A man-made problem that has feminist solutions. Yeah. That's kind of justice at the end of the day. It's yeah. That yes, there's a lot of kind of bad and neg- negative things happening. But at the same time, there's a lot of powerful people, especially powerful women, powerful Black women, Indigenous women in Latin America and all over the world that mm-hmm. are taking the charge, you know, taking the lead in, in the climate crisis. And we're seeing change Like to be inspired and keep these people in mind when I approach the climate crisis. And so I just wanted to highlight and say thank you for your work as well, because it's part oh, of that.
1: Thank you. Like thank things. you. Totally. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you.